We, uh, we began last week talking a little bit about the Beatitudes. If you are familiar with the Beatitudes, you know they're in Matthew chapter 5. If this is new to you, um, and church is a new thing to you, remember, uh, if you, if you remember the Bible, it's got about halfway through, you're going to find the Psalms and the Proverbs or something like that. If you're trying to get to Matthew, it's about two-thirds of the way through. Um, after you finish the Old Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. Um, you know, if you have your device, you can just poke that in and it'll, it'll pop up on your screen magically. Um, Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Beatitudes, and um, I just wanted to, uh, to start out by talking about um, a little bit of what we talked about last week, that when Jesus begins to teach in the Beatitudes, it's a very powerful counter-cultural statement. All the culture around him, the political culture, the religious culture, the, the, the community culture, the societal cultures are different than what Jesus is saying. They're a lot different. And so the symbol for this, uh, for this time, for this, this series on the Beatitudes, um, I, we'll, see, we'll see how we, how we manage to carry this forward, is that tie-dye shirt. And I was thinking, I wonder if I could get a tie-dye shirt with the Beatitudes on it, just to kind of see what kind of conversations I could get started with a tie-dye Beatitude shirt. But I want, you to, I want you to consider that he is going against the grain of everything. The Romans, the Greeks before them, the Jews, his society, his culture, the nature of the people he's dealing with, the religious background of, of, of which he has belo- to which he belongs. And so all of these things are pushing back against those things. And as Jesus starts the Beatitudes, or as, as Jesus starts to teach the Beatitudes, I want you to remember that Matthew is recalling the teachings of Jesus at least 40 years later. Okay? So just kind of get in your mind what sermons you can remember from 10 years ago. Yeah, me either, and I preached them. Think about what you may have remembered from childhood. Sermons you might remember from when you were a child. This is like remembering a sermon from childhood and being able to write it down. Now, granted, in the first century, they did a lot more emphasis on memorizing things and learning things and keeping them in your brain because they didn't have books they could carry around with them everywhere. But this is a pretty amazing thing. Matthew is remembering the teachings of Jesus. So I want to talk to you about his motivation for the way he goes about this business. If you want to look at what Matthew is doing, you go to the end of the book. The very last things he says in the book tell you what's motivating him. They tell you what's going on with him. It's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus speaking, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He said, I've got something. I want to talk to you about what you're going to do. Uh, The resurrection has happened. They've seen Jesus alive after the resurrection. He appears to them as he had told them he would in Galilee. And this is one of his messages. One of the last things he says and what Matthew records. This is the call on the church and on the disciples. Go make more of us. Go into the whole world and make more disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Daryl, there you are today. And teach them to observe all the things that I commanded you. So here's what Matthew's being motivated by. As you read the book, understand the motivation of the author. The author is trying to help you become a disciple. He's trying to teach you how to follow Jesus. He's trying to teach you the things that Jesus commanded them so that we might be able to take them on to the next generation. 
Okay? So, he establishes Jesus' Jewish bloodline in chapter 1. Right? Do you remember the beginning of the book? He starts out and he starts, this is Abraham, and he goes down through the list of all the, all the founding fathers, and he talks about how Jesus is connected to all of these great Jewish people of the past. Remember, remember the surprise he throws in in chapter 1? He throws in the grandmas. And all of the grandmas are outside the normal boundaries. These grandmas are foreigners. These grandmas have bad behavioral, behavioral histories. And here they are listed in the, in, the, in the background of Jesus in chapter 1. But he's clearly established that you can go straight from Jesus to Abraham. This man is a Jew of the highest order. Okay? He's trying to teach a Jewish crowd. He's trying to gain some momentum with them, some footing with them, a reason for them to listen. And he starts out by saying Jesus is a Jew from the deepest bloodline. He tells us that Jesus' birth in chapter, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 was a miraculous fulfillment of Old, Test, Old Testament prophetic planning. He goes through and he continually says, and this happened because the prophet said it, and this happened because of the prophet. And he's quoting these prophets over and over again. Jesus' miraculous birth was prophetically stated and prophetically fulfilled. Chapter 3, he demonstrates that a known prophet to the people in his neighborhood, a known prophet, John the Baptist, called him the Messiah. So you kind of, can you see his argument building? He's a He's from the deepest of Jewish bloodlines. He was born miraculously to fulfill the prophecies. He's actually been stated by a a current modern prophet to be the Messiah. Now in chapter 4, he demonstrates Jesus' personal spiritual uh, authority, Jesus' personal spiritual strength. He went out into the wilderness, tempted 40 days. Now you've got to understand, the Jewish people understand 40. Where does the 40 come from for them? They wandered through the desert from Egypt to the promised land for 40 years. So this idea that Jesus went out into the wilderness and faced temptation, the devil straight head on for 40 days, they went, oh yeah, we get that, we understand. That's real, personal, spiritual connection. That's powerful, spiritual strength. Chapter 4, second half, Jesus begins to teach and gather disciples. Remember he says, and the Bible says he went into Galilee and he began to teach the kingdom of God is at hand. And he introduces what Jesus is about. Jesus is about teaching the closeness, the, 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 the proximity of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Both physically, spiritually, prophetically, and personally. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he begins to gather up some disciples. Anybody who is anybody, anybody who is teaching, anybody who has anything to say has followers. So you can see the argument still building. So we arrive at chapter 5, and he starts to give us the content of Jesus' preaching. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just chapter 5, it's 5, 6, and 7. As you read through, you begin to see the content that he's sharing, a demonstration of who Jesus is and what he's teaching about, and how those things fit with how you're going to follow him. Okay? You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Let me show you what Jesus taught. And the rest of the book, actually, if you read it carefully, demonstrates the things taught in this sermon. There are illustration after illustration of these ideals, these sort of founding principles in the lives of the people Jesus interacts with. Okay? So you're with me so far? We're all gathered up and going on the same bus ride, so that's where we are today, chapter 5, sermon content of Jesus. So, Then he sets the stage for us. He says, 
Jesus went up on the mountain. When, when Israel was being refounded and sent into the promised land, where did Moses go? Up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. He sat down. Now remember, culturally, this is a big deal. He's speaking ex-cathedra. We still use this word. Speaking ex-cathedra means to be speaking from your seat. He sat down. A statement that what is about to be said is very important. He went up the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came and gathered close in. Do you remember the elders of Israel gathered in at the foot of the mountain when Moses was about to proclaim these are the commandments of God, these are the things of God? The elders of Israel gathered close in to hear. And then he taught. And what he, this word that he uses is an imperfect tense. I talked to you about this last week. He taught things that would continue to be taught. He taught things that were then in that moment but continued to be taught by him and are continuing to be taught by Matthew. You follow? So this, none of this is accidental. This didn't just throw out stuff. Oh, he went up the mountain, he sat down. He's not just describing the scene. He's setting the scene. He's wanting the audience to understand what's about to happen is significant. Okay? And then he begins. Last week I gave you what I thought was the best translation of this. I found it in the New Living Translation from Psalm chapter 1, which is a parallel kind of passage. Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit. Now, if you're following along, you'll see that there is a blessed are the poor in spirit in your Bible. My Bible is a New King James Version. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you note that the are is in italics? Remember, whenever you find something in the text that is in italics, it's not in the original text. It was put there to help you understand the flow of the language. This is a little awkward to say. Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit. It's a little awkward. You would kind of look at that and go, oh, that doesn't make so much. How does that work? So they inserted an R, blessed R, the poor in spirit, to kind of give the English a better flow. But I want you to get the, the, the sense of the Hebrew, the Aramaic, even the Greek in this context, that there's something else being said. So, so here's, my, here's my, uh, my best attempt. I've been thinking about this this week. <coughs> here's my best attempt at current linguistic patterns for this. Are you ready? It's awesome to be poor in spirit. It's the new Groff translation. It's awesome to be poor in spirit. He's trying to say, man, this is a big deal. It's, it's, it's such a cool thing. It's, 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 it's such an amazing, blessed, joyous thing to be poor in spirit. And we read that and we go, that doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus climbed up the mountain, sat down, began to pe preach with this great authority. And his opening line is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nope. His opening line is, it is so joy-producing, everlasting, continuous, bubbling up inside kind of joy-producing to be poor in spirit. And the congregation had to go, um, that's not what I heard from my rabbi. Being poor spiritually is a bad situation. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be there. But, but who is this guy? This is interesting. Remember what they say about Jesus? He preaches with authority. 
He opens this thing up with a series of these statements that should be somewhere close to this. Oh, the joy of being poor in spirit because they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. What's he preaching about? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is at hand. Hey, you don't want to know how to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Poor in spirit. Now, he's not throwing out a blessing on you being spiritually weak. He's stating a fact about the way the spiritual life in the kingdom of God functions. And we talked about this last week, so I don't want to stay here too long, but I'm going to tie these pieces together. When you know your spiritual poverty, you can see your need of God. These are the kind of people who seek God, and those people who seek God find God. And when you find God, you become a part of the kingdom of God. Get the process? Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty because these are the people who start seeking God. And when they start seeking after God, they start finding God. And when you find God, you enter into a completely different state of affairs. You are now a family member. You are now a part of the kingdom of God. Thank you for one amen. Whoever it was, may their tribe increase. A lot. Second proclamation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Those are what you're accustomed to hearing, right? Blessed are those who mourn. So here we go. Oh, the joy of those who mourn. Seem a little weird to you? Aren't those counter to each other? Mourning and joy are not the same. Aren't those opposites? Oh, the, the joy. Oh, the blessings of those who mourn. And I've heard people talk about this. Oh, you know, uh, when you're mourning, you're in a special place with God. And, and I think all those things are true physically and in reality for humanity. But, but there's more here than just this. Because the joy that he's speaking of, this happiness, it's, it's translated blessedness, joy, happiness. People are trying to find a way to translate this word because it carries so much more weight. It's joy bubbling up that continues forever and never stops. This kind of joy is found when you are poor in spirit and when you mourn. So this, these opening statements are, are just knocking people off of, their, uh, off of their moorings. They don't understand where Jesus is going. It really upsets the idea. It's, it's kind of this... Hippie guru counterculture stuff. Hence the tie-dye shirt. Right? Now, don't you, get, don't you picture, you know, Paul McCartney going up the mountain to his guru and sitting down and the guru saying, there's great joy in mourning. And Paul McCartney walks back down the mountain going, I really don't know what he said, but it sounded really profound. Right in the 60s, it was really hip to go find a guru, right? It was really a cool thing. You go find a guru somewhere and talk to him. And, and Jesus is throwing out some real 60s hippie guru stuff. Blessed are the poor. It's awesome to be poor in spirit. It's awesome to mourn. We don't spend enough time in this passage. We blow by this passage because these things are confusing. But go back into the original languages and you'll start to see things. 
Remember, the Greek about this blessing and this joy is that it's the kind that only the gods experience. So when Matthew is being translated into Greek from the Aramaic, probably originally written in, when it's being translated into, the, into Greek, they're saying, how can we express this Hebrew word that talks about joy welling up and continuing on and never stopping? Well, there's only one word used for that kind of weird joy that just comes from itself that's produced within, and that's the one used about the gods. Oh, I get it. This is the kind of joy that God experiences. Let's use that word. The joy of the believer who is poor in spirit and is mourning is the kind of joy that God experiences, that it's only sourced from God. Blessed are those who mourn, these mourners who are joyful. So I don't think this is straight out talking about when, when you lose your friend. The, the word for mourning in this case is the, is the strongest Greek word for mourning. The word for mourning in this case is the kind of mourning that a person does who lost their best friend. This is not lightweight stuff. You know, this is not, I saw a possum on the road today and he was kind of flattened out by the car in front of me. I'm sad. It's not that. This is really deep, penetrating heartbreak. Blessed are those whose hearts are breaking. Oh, the joy of the really broken hearted. Do you get that the audience is probably paying attention? Because they understand this in its direct language. So here's how I think we've got this thing rolling. Put the two pieces together. All the joy of the person who discovers their own spiritual poverty. Oh, it's, it's the source of a joy that cannot go away. It's a source of a joy that will well up from within you and become its own source. It's the joy that God only can provide. It's the kind of joy that is eternal. It's otherworldly. It's not of this earth. It's a joy beyond your understanding of joy. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, you're about to apprehend, to place your hand on the source of real joy. And you're about to do that because when you recognize your spiritual poverty, it drives you to a place of deep mourning. So these are not uh, ripped out from each other. This is not an existential kind of mourning and a spiritual kind of poverty. No, this is spiritual poverty and the drive of that spiritual poverty to transform, to recognize, I need God now. To be broken hearted about your own spiritual poverty. To really recognize the kind of person you are inside. Be honest with God and honest with yourself. To really know what a twisted, messed up thing is going on inside of you. To know the brokenness of your own heart is to recognize your spiritual poverty. To be broken by that is to mourn at a level that only God can respond to. You got it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the path, this is the way, this is how you get to, the, to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those whose hearts break as a result, because they will be comforted by the only source available, God. The joy that is offered because you come to me with your emptiness, 
is eternal, otherworldly, and get this phrase, self-perpetuating. I'll come back to that in a minute. But do you see the progression of the spiritual life? The spiritual life begins at the recognition of your spiritual poverty. It is, it is comforted, it is mended, it is connected to God through the broken heart of the person who recognizes. I recognize my own spiritual poverty and it hurts and it breaks and I'm sorry and I just want to come to you and apologize. And he swoops you up in his arms. He draws you close to his chest and he comforts you. If you consider your own conversion, now it's very likely that in a group of this size that folks have been coming to church for a long time and never actually been converted. converted. But those of you who have experienced conversion, I hear, often, I hear often the same story. I was going along the road or I was walking through my house or I was sitting on the couch. I was doing my regular gardening. Something normal about my life was going along and all of a sudden I was overwhelmed with my own brokenness. And I began to cry. I've heard stories of people having to pull off of the freeway onto the side and just wait till they were done crying because they couldn't go any further. The tears just flowed and flowed and flowed and all I could say was, Dear God, thank you that you accept people like me. To recognize your spiritual poverty. Allow that to really break you. You see, if you recognize your spiritual poverty and it doesn't break you, your only answer is is rebellion. If you recognize your spiritual poverty and it doesn't break you, your only answer is rebellion against God. The only thing you can do is shake your fist at the sky and say, no, I will not go forward. I am what I am too bad. And if you're in that state, you're in a dangerous place. If that's where you're finding yourself, if, you're, if, if God has convicted you of an area of your life where, you're, where the spiritual poverty is obvious to you and to Him, and you haven't been broken by that. If you're, if you're shaking your fist at heaven over this, you're in a very dangerous place. To recognize your spiritual poverty and not see Jesus as the answer is to find yourself with a completely hollow, no way to get to God life. Recognize it, embrace it, surrender it, admit it, and know that the God who loves you, is trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. To recognize your spiritual poverty and be broken by it. The joy of those who are spiritually poor and who mourn that spiritual poverty. The joy is there because theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the comfort of the presence of God. Oh, the joy. It is awesome to be in that place. It is a great thing to know you need God's help. It is a great thing if that knowledge breaks your heart. It's awesome to know you need God's help. It's awesome if that knowledge breaks your heart and you go to Him. Do you understand? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It is so amazing, so awesome if you reach the understanding of your own spiritual poverty. 
It is so fantastic if that spiritual poverty causes your heart to break, your eyes to well up, and you turn to the only answer there is because that's the only answer there is. You will find comfort there. It's nowhere else. People have tried to do it in pills and bottles and professional achievements and finance and every other thing in the world. And they have found all those things to ring hollow when they finally hit their knees, eyes welling up with tears and say, I have nowhere else to go. God, I go to you. He wraps his arms around us. He draws us in close and says, welcome home. Why did it take so long? I'm sorry for the scars and the pain that you suffered on the way. It is a tremendous, awesome, joy-producing blessing to know your spiritual poverty, to be broken by it, and go to God for the answer. These create lasting joy because these people are comforted by God and know that they are kingdom subjects. Lasting joy comes from the connection of the relationship with God and in the connection of that relationship with God, the assurance that you belong to Him. Are, are, are Jesus opening phrases catching you at all? Okay, I'll be wrap Wrap, wrap this thing up. Oh, the joy that comes to a heart broken by the knowledge of your own spiritual poverty. You need a different picture? Psalm chapter 42, verse 1. You've heard the song maybe. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs. As a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Here's, here's this statement from the psalmist describing what this feels like. You know what spiritual poverty feels like? A dry, desperate need for a drink of water. Anything for a drink of water. Such spiritual, such recognition of my need for God that it's like the air I breathe, the water I need, it's food to me, it's, susten it's sustaining reality to me. It's as real as any tangible thing in my life to know that the spiritual needs that I have are met by the authority and presence and power of God. Oh God, like a deer panting for water, that's the way my soul longs for you. Try a different one. Jesus is standing by a well with a Samaritan woman. They're having a discussion about water and wells. And, hey, I, you know, give me a drink, she, he says to her. And she says, um, <coughs> excuse me, why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jewish man. He said, lady, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would say to me, please give me this drink because the water that I give you, whoever drinks of this water, shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well, a source in itself, springing up to eternal life. You get it? My soul thirsts because I recognize my own brokenness. It breaks my heart, and with that longing brokenness, I go to God. Oh, the joy to be discovered at the end of that road. 
Oh, the magnificent answer to your heart's greatest need to be discovered at the end of that road. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, Jesus says, and when it breaks your heart, come to me. Now, I don't know where you are. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long, long time. And some of you are saying, yeah, I've crossed this bridge. But I'm telling you, he brings you back to this bridge regularly. If you are staying close to God, if you're listening to Him in prayer, if you're studying the Bible, if you're reading and listening for God's answers and God's direction in your life, He brings you to places like this on a regular basis. Places you thought you'd covered. And God says, hey, you know, you still have some things to be dealt with over in this corner. You've been kind of hiding them, burying them under some other things, pretending they don't exist. It's your pride. It's your selfishness. It's your rebellion. You pick it out. It's one of these things that you're not giving over to me. And in that place, you are still broken. You are still suffering spiritual poverty. And when you really honestly say, yeah, God, you're right, there's an ache inside that is only met by the blood of Jesus and the arms of God. And the spiritual life is a walk down this path. It starts on this path and as He moves you along, He keeps bringing you back to the mirror and He simply holds it up in front of us and says, Walt, take a close look. Do you see what I see? And if I say yes, and it moves me, there is great joy next because he covers me with his grace wraps his merciful arms around me and reminds me that I am his when you accept the joy that is available in Jesus you have what he said to the disciples would be given to them after they saw the resurrection a joy that no one No circumstances, no change, no life event, no political party, no world news, nobody ever anywhere can take from you. Because its source is God himself. Let's pray. Father, we are talking about a transformation of our heart. We thank you for the tangible ways in which this is made aware to us. Thank you for those moments when we've been brought to tears by our own poverty. In recognition of you and your answers we hand it over. So today on behalf of this church family we want to say thank you. We do recognize that we're messed up inside at a place where it's so deep it scares us. That sin pops up into our minds in all kinds of fashions. Petty to severe. In the recognition of our own spiritual brokenness, first we say we're sorry, we apologize.
apologize for embarrassing the family, for taking your name in this way in vain. We ask that you would heal this place in us. Sew up the the tears in our spiritual garments. And that you would walk us around this pothole the next time it shows up on the road. We bind ourselves again to you. We ask for the covering of your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name.